True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Diary Entry, 10 July 2001, 10.59 Right now, we, me and Yaku, are waiting for my uncle to arrive here at the flats where my mom's body is laying. We just moved her so nobody can see her when they're looking through the window. You see, we're not bad people. We really do love each other. I'm not going to give in. I'll stand by my man. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 72, The Murder of Santa Pretorius. episode is sponsored by Shattered, a new release thriller movie that you're not going to be able to look away from. When wealthy recent divorcee Chris meets the dazzling sky in a seemingly chance encounter in a local mall, the two feel instant chemistry. But after Chris is injured by a would-be car thief, Sky moves in to take care of him and her roommate turns up dead, Chris has some serious questions for his new love. Unfortunately, he's not going to like the answer, which is that Skye is not who she claims to be, and she is certainly not interested in a happily ever after with Chris. Chris is soon a prisoner in his own home, as Skye and her accomplices use any means necessary to get the information they want out of him. When Chris's ex-wife Jamie and daughter Willow arrive at the house, all three are faced with a stark choice escape, or die. Shattered, starring Cameron Monaghan, Lily Kuch, and John Malkovich, released at cinemas nationwide last Friday. Last week, I announced a giveaway we were running in which one lucky True Crime South Africa listener will watch Shattered for free along with a friend. It's announcement time. The winner of two tickets to see Shattered is... Monica Jane Buerta. Congratulations. I'll be in touch with your prize. A huge thank you goes out to Shattered for supporting True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Catherine Mitchell, Melissa, Rowena, Christopher Vandervolt, Cheryl Vandenbach, Tanya Ginsberg, Daniel Chetty, and Megan for your support on Patreon, as well as Somila Ngreso for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. It really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. There are now additional ways that you can support the show, with two online businesses providing 10% discounts when you use the code TCSA10 at checkout. You can get your health and beauty needs at King Online, and you can get all your printing requirements designed, printed, and delivered by PrintCrowd. You can also help to support me as an individual creator 
by checking out the companion podcast I created with Showmax for the Devil's Dorp documentary or by purchasing the Krugersdorp Cult Killings audiobook on Audible, Google Play Books or Apple Books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen and interacting on social media all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. You can also leave a review on the podcast app you use to listen. If your podcast platform does not have that option, a Google or Facebook review is equally helpful. The case I'm covering today involves the crime of matricide, the killing of a mother by their child. Although that crime classification stands no matter the age of the perpetrator, in this case the killer was a minor, but she didn't work alone. It's always difficult for us to comprehend that children can commit the worst of crimes. We equate children with innocence of mind, and when they do something so heinous, we assume that they must have either been very troubled or perhaps abused. The relationship between a teenage girl and their mother is, is almost always strained at some point. For the most part, as teenage girls grow older, they come to understand their mothers better and see them as, as the human beings they are. But in this case, there would be no later year reconciliation or deeper understanding. There would only be violence and bloodshed. In researching this case, I used several online resources, as well as Chris Carsten's book, Bad Kids, and Mickey Pistorius's book, Fatal Females. So let's get into Episode 72, The Murder of Santa Pretorius. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Santa Pretorius met and married her husband, who is not named in any resources, when she was in her early 20s. Like many other newlyweds, she dreamed of the happy life she would spend with her husband, the beautiful family they would build, and how their marriage would only grow in closeness and happiness each year. Unfortunately for Santa, the exact opposite would be true. By the time she gave birth to her first daughter, Natasha, when she was 24, she'd already realized that her husband had a serious problem with alcohol abuse. The man regularly lost his job due to his alcoholism, and the family struggled financially and had to move around a lot. Natasha was eventually removed from the couple's care and placed in a foster home. Santa was emotionally bereft, but stayed with her husband, following him around and hoping that each move would bring the stability she needed to get her daughter back. A hope that would never be fulfilled. When Santa was 31, she fell pregnant again and gave birth to another little girl who she named Alta. Santa had likely seen this as her second chance at motherhood, and surely hoped once again that her husband would mend his ways and allow them to be a family. But over the course of the next ten years, Alta would attend eight different schools. Despite this, 
The girl excelled in academics and earned prefect roles and was appointed class captain. Also, despite her father's violence and disruptions when he was drunk, Alta was very closely bonded with him. Then, in 1997, when Alta was 12 years old, her father's depression and alcoholism overwhelmed him completely, and he committed suicide. Alta was devastated and blamed her mother, claiming that it was the woman's constant complaints and arguments that had driven the man to it. Santa did her best to support her daughter through the loss, and was shocked when she discovered that Alta had taken up with a bad crowd at school and started smoking dacha. She confronted her, and Alta would later claim that her mother had threatened to send her into foster care with Natasha unless she stopped her drug use. Santa also then moved Alta to Pretoria in the hopes of getting her away from the friends she'd taken up with, and for a while. Things improved at home. Alta was then enrolled at a school in Pretoria West. Santa got a job at a hospital in Pretoria where she worked as a nurse, but the job involved long hours, and Alta would often be home alone. This, of course, is not uncommon for a single-parent family with an older child. The parent needs to earn money for them to survive. And they really have no choice but to trust the child to look after themselves after school. It would be at her new school that Alta would meet seventeen-year-old Yaku Stein. The pair immediately bonded over what they saw as their parents' neglect of them. Yaku was the middle child of three. His parents had divorced when he was three years old, and his mother had worked two jobs to try and support her children. Yaku would claim that his parents had no interest in him at all, and perhaps his criminal and delinquent behaviour, which began when he was just eight years old, was a reflection of his desire for attention. When he was in grade two, he stole fifty rand and was put into a hostel for children with behavioural issues. Yaku's mother remarried during this time, but the now more secure home life did nothing to curb his behaviour. In grade three, he stole a bicycle from another child, and in grade four, he stole sweets from a local shop. He started using drugs before he made it to high school, and in grade nine, he was expelled from Pretoria Gardens Technical School for aggressive behaviour. He was sent to a boarding school in Mpumalanga, where he was promptly expelled again for being in possession of LSD and ecstasy. Yaku then went to live with his father and stepmother, and was enrolled in another new school, which he was also expelled from. By the time his father found yet another school that would actually accept the boy, Yaku had started using heroin, and it wasn't long until he had to move to the final school he would attend, where he met Alta. Yaku and Alta soon started using alcohol, LSD. Ecstasy and heroin together, and in January two thousand and one, they ran away from home together. The pair were soon detained by police, though, and went to Tutela Youth Centre in Pretoria, where they were assessed. It was determined that Yaku and Alta needed rehabilitation intervention for their substance issues, and Alta was sent to Castle Carry in Nina Park. 
Yaku, was sent to a rehabilitation centre outside of Kalanen, which also served as a halfway house for juvenile awaiting trial prisoners. This was not a good combination. Santa regularly visited her daughter while she was at Castle Kerry. Mother and daughter seemed to be rebuilding their relationship, and Alta would write in her diary around that time that she was grateful for her mother's support and guidance. In June 2001, Alta was discharged from the rehab facility. As had become habit for the small family unit, Santa decided that a fresh start was in order, and they moved to a new flat in Gazina. The plan was that Alta would return to school in July and hopefully start to get back on track. But shortly after Alta returned to school, she came home with the news that Yaku had been released from his rehab centre and they had reunited. She asked her dismayed mother if Yaku could come and live with them because he didn't want to go back home. Santa refused and begged Alta not to get back into a relationship with Yaku. Alta, though, insisted that she and Yaku were in love and nothing was going to tear them apart. Although Santa was against her daughter getting back together with Yaku, she also feared that if she pushed too hard, she would lose Alta. Later psychological evaluations would reveal that as much as Alta was dependent on Santa for emotional support, the same was true the other way, and perhaps unhealthily so. This too is not uncommon in single-parent families, especially where there is only one child in the home. The parents, having no other adult to share their problems with, will start to lean on the child for emotional support, and often the child will be forced to take on far too much responsibility for their parents and be exposed to adult issues much too early in life. In a sense, the child becomes a replacement for the parent's partner in an emotional context. This is called parentification and can have a range of psychological consequences for the child. On the 6th of July 2001, Santa visited her sister and told her that she was having problems with Alta again. She said that although she hadn't agreed to have Yaku stay in the flat with them, he was there so much that it felt like he was living there. She also told her sister that she feared that Yaku was bringing drugs into the home too. It would be the last time Santa's sister would see her. On Saturday the 7th of July, Alta and Yaku used heroin. As is the case with most parents of addicts, Santa had become highly attuned to the signs that her daughter was using, and she immediately confronted her about being high. That night, Santa called Alta to her room and told her that she was going to be banning Yaku from the home and that she would only be allowed to see him on Friday nights. Initially, Alta had been furious, and mother and daughter got into a huge argument. But later, Alta apologised to her mother and said that she understood and would follow her instructions. That night, all three sat on the couch with Santa sitting between the couple. When Santa nodded off, the teenagers snuck into the kitchen and began to have sex. They knocked something off the counter, though, and Santa woke up to the noise 
and demanded they come back to the lounge with her. They did so, although they were both highly annoyed at this point. Santa eventually fell into a deep sleep in front of the television. What came next seems to have been completely out of the blue, although we'll never really know what conversations the pair had prior to that. Both seemed to realise that with Santa around, they would have to follow her rules, at least for the next two years until Alta turned 18. There are also two different versions about who uttered the inciting words. Carsten's book claims that Yaku said them, but Pistorius's book says that Alta said them. Either way, at 2 a.m. on Sunday morning, with Santa still snoring on the couch, one teenager turned to the other and said, Let's kill her. And there was no hesitation from the other. Alta got up, walked to the kitchen and grabbed a knife. She returned to the lounge and handed it to Yaku. The pair then counted to three, and Yaku began to stab Santa. The woman woke up and started to plead for her life. Alta went back into the kitchen, got another knife, and joined in on stabbing her mother. They would inflict 20 stab wounds on Santa in her neck, face, chest and hips before she stopped moving. Then Yaku pulled one of his shoelaces out and wrapped it around the woman's neck, choking her for several minutes until he was sure she was dead. They then sank onto the couch, exhausted, smoked a joint and made coffee. Their blood-stained hands would leave imprints around the coffee mugs, which would later be found by police. They then left the house for a walk. When they returned, they ate green jelly straight out of the fridge and then went to sleep. When they woke later on Sunday morning, no longer under the haze of heroin and dacha, they realised that they would have to do something about Santa's body. Yaku came up with the idea that if they could cut her body up into small enough pieces, they could flush her down the toilet. He went to his mother's house where he grabbed a saw and some large butcher knives and returned to the flat. Although it had seemed a good idea at the time, when the pair stood in front of the body, both would later say that dismembering Santa felt a stretch too far for either of them. They would not admit it to each other, though, perhaps both wanting to retain the bravado, and instead they convinced themselves that they were just too tired to cut the body up at that time. Alta's uncle had been invited for lunch on Sunday, so she knew he was going to be arriving at any moment. They dragged Santa's body behind the couch, where she wouldn't be seen from the window, and covered the blood-stained furniture and floor with blankets. When her uncle arrived, he knocked and called out for quite some time, and then he left. Alta and Yaku went to Sunnyside where they could buy drugs and distract themselves amongst the crowds. They stayed in Sunnyside that night, not wanting to return to the flat where the body lay, because they still had no idea what they were going to do with Santa. On Monday morning, when Santa did not arrive for work, her employer phoned her older daughter, Natasha. Santa had been an excellent employee 
and her employer knew she would not just skip work without letting them know what was happening. Natasha phoned the flat and got no reply. She called Santa's sister, who hadn't heard from her since the 6th. Natasha and her aunt drove to the flat and found it locked up. They knocked and peered through the windows but saw nothing. The two women asked the caretaker if he, if he would unlock the door for them, but he said it would be a violation of Santa's privacy and told them they would have to bring the police with in order for him to do so. Natasha called police and reported her mother as missing, but police said that as Santa was an adult, they would not immediately start investigating, as she may well have disappeared of her own volition. Later that day, Alta and Yaku arrived back at the flat. They avoided the lounge entirely and moved the microwave into Alta's bedroom, where they heated up food, smoked joints, drank alcohol, and then fell asleep. When Santa did not arrive for work again on Tuesday, her employer phoned Natasha, who in turn tried calling the flat again. This time her sister picked up. Alta told Natasha that their mother had left the flat on Sunday night with a man in a red golf, and she hadn't seen her since. The pair knew that they had to make a move. The flat was becoming an unbearable place to be with Santa's body starting to decompose, and it would not be long before someone made entrance. They went to the home of one of Yaku's friends, where he stole a gun and ammunition from a cupboard while Alta distracted the man. When they returned to the flat, for some reason they decided that going in through the window would be less conspicuous than entering through the door. But they were spotted by the caretaker, who in turn called Natasha. She called police again. On Thursday, the police arrived at Santa's flat. They asked the caretaker to open the door, and almost immediately the smell overwhelmed them. Any police officer that had ever visited a death scene knew exactly what that smell meant. The flat was in chaos. Behind the couch they found the body of Santa Pretorius. She was partially naked from the struggle with her killers, her clothes laying in tatters beneath her body. Police found Dacher a broken knife, as well as other bloodied knives, the bloodied coffee mugs and half-eaten plates of food all over the flat. It was clear to them that someone had been living and eating in the flat while Santa's body had lain decomposing in the lounge. Alta and Yaku were nowhere to be found. Natasha arrived at the flat shortly after the police, and she was asked to identify her mother's body. Police also found Alta's diaries in her room, with the entry about her and Yaku waiting for her uncle to arrive, and essentially admitting to having killed her mother. While police were making their gruesome discovery in Pretoria, Yaku and Alta were hitchhiking their way to a friend's house in Kempton Park. They'd been sat on a curb in Pretoria when William Harmson drove past. Alta lifted her thumb as he did, and the man stopped for them. They thanked him, and Alta got in the front, while Yaku got in behind William. Within a few minutes of William having set off toward the highway, Yaku pushed a gun into the back of the man's neck, and told him to hand over his wallet and stop the car. William begged Yaku not to shoot, 
saying he had a young child at home, but he continued driving and didn't stop the car. Alter then leaned over and pulled the handbrake up, immediately bringing the vehicle to a stop. In an instant, William pulled the car keys from the ignition and ran from the car. He sheltered in the garden of a nearby home and watched Alter and Yaku run from his car. He phoned police on his cell phone and started to chase the pair. Police arrived in minutes and arrested both Yaku and Alta. It didn't take long for police to realize that the pair were not just attempted hijackers, but also wanted for murder. Both Yaku and Alta provided full confessions about their involvement in Santa's murder. After a court appearance on the 14th of July, they were charged with murder, theft, robbery with aggravating circumstances, and the possession of an unlicensed firearm and ammunition. When they appeared in court next on the 20th of July, it became clear that neither teenager had anyone who wished to take responsibility for them. Yaku's parents had both declined to allow him into their homes if he was granted bail, and no one in Alta's extended family was going to allow her to live with them after she'd murdered her mother. As a result, both were denied bail, and Alta was sent to a place of safety, while Yaku was remanded to the juvenile-awaiting trial section of Pretoria Prison. As both Alta and Yaku were still minors, they could not legally be identified during their trial, so they were referred to as Adam and Eve. The biblical reference names, along with the horror that a child committing a murder brings, had the public following the case eagerly in the media. Although both Yaku and Alta can now legally be identified, when referring to this case, many still call it the Adam and Eve murder. Both teenagers were sent for psychological evaluation prior to the trial commencing. When they saw each other in court in September 2001, the couple embraced and blew each other kisses during the proceedings. Although Yaku's father and Alta's aunt did attend proceedings that day, there was still no offer forthcoming for bail to be posted for either teenager. When the trial began in May 2002, Alta and Yaku both pleaded guilty to the charges against them. This meant that the trial would proceed directly to the sentencing phase, which included the presentation of mitigating and aggravating circumstances. A psychiatric evaluation was presented, which found that Alta had narcissistic tendencies and that she was manipulative and impulsive. Her narcissistic traits meant that she'd found it very difficult to see that her mother was actually displaying care toward her when she said she didn't want her to see Yaku anymore. Criminologist Dr. Irma Labaskachny testified that Alta had said she'd felt no love from her mother and that she tired of the emotional burden she felt when she was around her mother. She claimed her mother had threatened to burn her with a frying pan when she was a child if she wouldn't eat her food, and that she'd threatened to send her to foster care. As for Yaku, Labaskakni said that he very clearly had a difficult relationship with both his parents. But like Alta, despite his father having been absent for much of his life, he still hero-worshipped the man. Labaskakni said that Yaku typified antisocial behaviour 
and although she had empathy for him having become a victim of the system quite early on in life, as well as the difficulties that Alta had experienced, she told the judge that the viciousness of the crimes and the lack of remorse both displayed meant that if she'd been testifying in a court in which the death penalty was allowed, she would have recommended the court execute the teenagers. She said that both Yaku and Alta were masters of manipulation, and as such, true rehabilitation would be very difficult, as they may only present as rehabilitated on the surface. In handing down her sentence, Judge Mayer said that it was clear that all of the institutions Yaku had passed through in his life had failed him. Rather than just expelling him and moving the problem on, at least one could have attempted to get the child the psychological help he needed. As for Alta, she said that she found her conduct quite chilling, as she'd never presented as a difficult child, and although this behaviour had only seemingly started when she'd met Yaku, through reading her diaries, it became clear that Alta had been the brains of the operation. She had manipulated Yaku on many occasions, and even referred to certain instances in her diary. The judge hoped, though, that there could be a possibility that given their youth they, they could be rehabilitated. So she sentenced each of them to 20 years in prison. She ordered that Alta should serve no less than 15 years, and that her level of rehabilitation should be clearly proven before she was released. Alta's sister, Natasha, had initially wanted her sister to serve as much time as possible for the murder of their mother, but after her sentencing, she hugged the girl tightly and both cried. Alta took a photograph of her mother with her to jail. Yaku, while awaiting trial, had become involved in the 26ers gang, and he bore gang tattoos at his sentencing. The love story between the two teenagers had seemingly faded, as they didn't even look at each other during the sentencing. One passage from Alta's diary, which was included in one of the sources I found, reminded me very much of how Marinda Stain, the woman convicted for murdering 11 people in Krugersdorp and surrounds, spoke about her murders on the stand. Rather than just the scene of horror you would have expected described by a 16-year-old girl who just killed her mother, Alta described how the murder had been an adrenaline rush. She expressed concern only for her own and Yaku's future if they were caught. She also seemed very concerned with how people would judge them if Santa's murder was revealed. Now, let's face it, teenagers are generally pretty selfish little creatures. I know, because I was one. But this level of narcissism really goes above and beyond as far as I'm concerned. In her book, Fatal Females, Mickey Pistorius writes that it's not uncommon for troubled teenagers to be attracted to each other, whether in a friendship or relationship sense. And as we've discussed in many other killer couple cases, on their own, it's unlikely that either one would have committed such a heinous murder at that age. But when their two personalities came together, chaos ensued. 
I did find it very interesting that both Dr. Irma Labaskachny and the judge believed that Alta had been the driving force in the relationship. This is something we saw with Shonae van Heerden too, and something we at the very least suspect in many other killer couple pairings. Unfortunately, in South Africa it is very difficult and at times impossible to find out the status of an incarcerated prisoner. So although both Alta and Yaku would have become eligible for parole in 2017, I have no idea whether they were released or not. Even if they weren't, by the end of this year, 2022, they would have served their full sentence, and they will have to be released. Human beings have an amazing capacity for change sometimes, and despite our reoffending rates being at 90% in this country, I do hope that Alta and Yaku will fall into the 10% that go on to live normal and productive lives outside of prison. If I think about the difficulty of that prospect, though, considering that they were both teenagers when they went into jail and will be released as adults in their mid to late 30s, that have not experienced any of the rites of passage, the learning experiences, or the lessons that their peers have, I can't imagine where one would even begin to build a life. Santa Pretorius was not perfect, just as no parent is. She spent perhaps far too long loving and accommodating a man whose demons would eventually destroy him, and she may well have fallen into the trap of treating her daughter like an adult rather than the child she was. But she clearly loved her daughter. If she didn't, she wouldn't have supported her through her rehab, wanted her to spend time with people who were good for her and done her best to keep her on the right path. It would have been very easy for Santa to sit back and just let her daughter do what she pleased with Yaku, to ruin her life and become an addict. If she'd done that, she might still have been alive today. But Santa cared enough for her daughter that, as difficult as Alta made it, she continued to push to keep her safe. And sadly, that cost her her life. Thank you for listening to episode 72, The Murder of Santa Pretorius. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I'll be back next Friday with another episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.